Welcome to Chief Digital Heroes, where we celebrate those who lead the charge on all things digital transformation at the world's most innovative banks and financial institutions. Here's your host, Matthew Van Niekerk, CEO and founder of Settlement. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Chief Digital Heroes. Today, I'm speaking with Erna Greiberg, who is the CEO, Chairman of the Board of the Managing Directors of Commerce Trade Services. Erna, thank you so much for joining us today for the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. And it's a pleasure. Maybe I give a quick introduction before we start. So uh, my name is Arne Greiber. I'm the CEO for the last three years of Commerce Trade Services, which is a 100% subsidiary of uh, Commerce Bank Group. We are located here in Asia in Kuala Lumpur. And Penang, I've also been in the region here uh, the last nine years, basically in Hong Kong, China, Singapore, different roads in transaction banking and FI space. And before was mainly uh, working in Frankfurt and Hanover in Germany. Okay. I'm very excited for today's uh, session. Yeah. Thanks, Erna. Great to have you on the show. Yeah. So where are you from, Erna? Just curious out of the, the audience, maybe curious at the, a bit about the, where what your background is. I'm from Germany and how I ended up in Asia was back in 2011, there was a auto market boom in China. And at that time, I was lucky enough to have a, a boss who was wanted me to get more exposure to that because when I was based in Hanover, a lot of car manufacturers, because Volkswagen is headquartered there, a lot of car suppliers and car manufacturers around that region and Commerce Bank was supporting these corporates on their way to China. And I got my opportunity to go to Beijing in 2011, which uh, then I was fascinated by the spirit and the fast developments and the fast movements of the markets and the countries. And that's how I got in touch with, with Asia over the years in different roads. But that was really the eye-opener for me, how much potential the region and therefore particularly China um, has in terms of the corporates and the franchise that we as a bank or commerce bank was supporting at that time or still supporting. Oh, it's very interesting. Yeah. There's, um, I'm really curious to hear a bit more about like focusing on your, your global experience in transaction banking. How did you make the move from you know, automotive to transaction banking? And how do you, you know, from what you're doing now at Commerce Bank, you're the CEO of the Commerce the Trade Services. I'm curious to hear a bit more about like the move from automotive to Commerce to Trade Services. Yeah, maybe let me explain a little bit. So I think at that time, the franchise we have in, in Asia and the different branches um, that time was, was Shanghai and Beijing. They were not only focusing on, on automotive, but they're basically providing a variety of services. Um, one of a key service of our bank is transaction banking, which is basically the, the cash management and the trade finance space. But we're also having a market leading position in, in Germany and we are supporting our corporate on their way to Asia or internationally on their way into Germany. And at that time, there's not only that, there's also, of course, other products like the accounts, uh, derivatives or investment banking products and other loans um, and account services. But basically, we've been traditionally very strong on the, the documentary trade side. And that's our DNA, why the bank has been founded more than 150 years ago. And I was at that time in the branches in Hong Kong, China, and Singapore, and we set up the company here back in 2012 as a wholly owned subsidiary, where I'm now the CEO of, because 
we centralize a lot of our transaction banking or trade finance services here to execute them faster, better, and around the clock for the group and for the banks that we globally services because we provide many services to, to other banks, I think in more than 150 countries. And that's a lot of on the letters of credit space and the the so-called guarantees side, as well as the, the cash management euro clearing, where I think we have quite a strong position. So that's how I at least got into the role. So we have a lot of touch points on transaction banking when it comes to the execution side. We're working extremely closely with Germany, uh, with APEC, I think 70% of what we do is for the German and European market, because that's where we are simply larger in terms of the, the corporate size, but we also support all the branches that we are having in, in Asia, mainly Singapore, Japan, uh, China, which is Shanghai and Beijing from here. Very cool. Thanks for that kind of a briefing on the total scope of activity. And as the CEO of, um, of Commerce Services, what does a typical day look like for you? Now, interesting question. I would say each day looks very, very different, right? Because A and foremost, I have to make sure that the strategic target or the strategy that we have is executed accordingly um, to the plans. And uh, back in 2020, we set up a huge transformation program whereby we moved a lot of services around the globe to here. And that's not only trade finance, that's many other services on payments, IT, KYC, basically a whole range of services in, in the operations world, but also outside of the operations world. And I have to make sure that we're basically in line with the strategy. And as you know, along the way, obstacles and hurdles will pop up. And I have to make sure that my management team is empowered to navigate around these, that the way that we initially plan might not be the same, but still that we are achieving the targets and the goals. And thereby, it means managing stakeholders and clients um, around the world, but also making sure that our teams are empowered enough to perform and providing the leadership because the key thing of all of that is not only that the strategy that we defined or me and the my fellow board member colleagues here are believing in it and driving it, but basically that every person here understands why are we doing it, that we have a clear communication top down and even an intern that we have here understands why are we now doing it, what's our plan going forward. And thereby, each day is, is very different in managing external um, steady code, but also here internally to set the right tone, make sure the culture is there. On top of that, I'm also sitting on the board of the Malaysian German Chamber, whereby a lot of interest is coming from German corporates to go into Malaysia because of risk diversification they want to do in China and not only be anymore in China alone. So I have to also make sure... I'm representing us well and I'm supporting the, the German corporates in both ways. So the the day-by-day -day job is very different each day, but in a nutshell, it's making sure the strategy, the culture, and our values are well in track and tied together that we can execute our targets and uh, contribute to the overall group. All right. I didn't ask you at the beginning, but how many people are working for the company? We are year to date 450 people um, of which 400 are sitting in Kuala Lumpur and uh, around about 50 in Penang which is in the north of Malaysia where we just opened in July an office but we are growing significantly beyond 100 people a, a year because we from a global perspective have seen the value in terms of cost benefit but also talent availability and, and skill set to what we want to achieve so 
initially we started with 15 over people only for trade finance and now we basically have a global coverage model with 24 not 24 7 but 24 hours uh, monday to friday and then some it services run on the weekend but basically we cover from here for time sensitive processes or jobs in the Asia hours, European hours, including UK, as well as the America's market, which is a night shift for us. So we're growing quite significantly each year and currently, yeah, 450 or close to 500 people. Right. So you've grown from like 15 to almost 500 people now. That's uh, over the last uh, couple of years. And as the the CEO that's been driving that activity, you must get very much directly involved in the transformation. But I'm actually really curious to to hear how involved you are in the activities that are going on on the ground. But please share, if you don't mind, to to tell us a bit about it. Yeah, a good question. I mean, of course, ultimately, as CEO, I'm I'm responsible locally for the execution of the transformation program and that all the things from the different markets that we're moving, which we call transitions, are are functioning well in terms of the quantity, but also in terms of the knowledge transfer and the quality. And ideally to do it even better, to automize um, things or to, to lift synergies. I would not say that basically because of so many different business lines that we're having and so many markets, I think more than 30 markets that we cover where we have our own branches, that I will be, I cannot be hands-on on these topics, but yeah. we in the management committee have the right governance um, set up that I know where we have issues and can involve myself early enough. And at the same time, when I know things are running very smooth, I'm very happy and not involve myself. So I, I involve myself more towards the overall program and to areas whereby we're having issues for whatever reasons. And that's the level that I involve myself to either clean up things which have caused issues or to be the mediator in the middle to understand why are we now having an issue that are the things on the transformation where I get involved and the rest is by our usual governance model that we have in the management committees and other committees whereby I get the necessary updates to make adjustments or to simply change the way that we're currently going to make sure we might be a little bit behind target. But if we adjust our way going forward, we still be able to make it and important for me is to see a clear red line that we follow, even we are deviating from the path a little bit because ultimately it matters, the output matters, how you get there. I do not care so much. And that's also which gives the the freedom to the employees to empower them because ultimately the result matters. Yes, that must be very inspiring for the people working for Commerce Services to know that they, if they have an idea about what they can do or what they want to do and will be, yeah, if they set the target, make it clear. The journey yep. on how you get there is uh, to the creativity of the people around you. So that yeah, exactly. but that, that really requires that you you hire a great team and you recruit great teams that can build has that uh, ability to uh, think of new strategies. I'm curious to hear about what for you when you're looking at creating a team that is somewhat self-directed then that they're able to achieve the goal, the objective. I think nobody likes to micromanage. And um, if you hire the right people, then you can set the objective and let them achieve it. And I'm curious to hear from your perspective, when you're hiring people to fill those roles, what do you think are the key criteria to get people that are more self-directed so that they can achieve the objectives on their own initiative uh, when the, the objectives are cleared? Yeah, so first of all, I mean, the HR people that we have or managers they are segregated in different areas yeah, to make sure they, they understand the requirements on the hiring because the pipeline per annum 
uh, we have to deliver yeah, beyond 100 people per year, I think even beyond 150 hires. And yeah, we have to make sure that we do the utmost to make sure we have the right people in the job. You cannot always prevent from making a, a wrong choice that happens. However, the teams are quite diverse. I wouldn't say we are only hiring senior people. That would be the wrong setup because ultimately we also grow juniors or graduates from universities, internship programs to have a right mixture of juniors, trainees, mid-levels and seniors. And ultimately it's then up to each line manager to make sure they get this team running in the same direction and it doesn't need to be like superstars. We don't need them because you need a few of them. But if you're a good leader, you make sure that you can turn around a not performing team into a performing one or a, a mid-performing team into a, a high-performing team. And that's what we in, a, in the senior management always encourage and guide our more junior leaders to make sure they drive that on a day-to-day -day basis. And then if you create that culture and spirit of performance, the youngsters will feel it and also do go the extra mile. And all you want as an employer is that people have the transparency, they know what's going on. And then if they're happy and have a good working environment, they are more likely to go the extra mile than if they come to an environment where they don't like it, where they don't understand where a lot of office politics going on. So I would say our key strength is really the culture where people really see the difference, where we see open engagement. And yes, we do hire senior people, particularly for jobs that we're taking on newly when it's a new business line. Yeah, you need to make sure it's running smooth, but down the road, we have a good operating model whereby we have juniors in here or, or graduate trainees, which over the time developed also even to a leadership career, which is not everyone wants it. Some of them are very happy to continue their career path on an individual contributor, and that's fine because we have the different career opportunities here, but it's ultimately a good combination of uh, the line manager or the, the leader and HR to make sure we, we find the right person, but not only the right person, but the person that we hire needs to fit well in the overall team and the, the mixture of women, men, seniority versus juniors is well enough to make sure we have a good, reasonable um, cost space as well, as well as a good level of comfort on when it comes to the quality and the quantity that we'll be able to deliver to our clients. Okay. And if you were to, like you, um, uh, Commerce Services, I, I understood from your introduction that it's been around for a few years. I'm curious to hear about the stage of digital, digitalization of what you're doing. So, yeah. you know, if digital transformation, if we view it on a spectrum, is the beginning phase, the middle phase, and then we're kind of, you know, digitally transformed. How do you look at that? And where would you say that uh, Commerce Trade Services is in a digital transformation perspective? Given that you're a new company, maybe it's easier to, you know, you kind of start digital, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how you feel the company's doing from a digital transformation perspective. Yeah, no, good question, Messi. I mean, the company exists for, I would say, 10 years, but only really only the last four years, we significantly increased in services. However, I would say I see us on 50 to 60%. I mean, we drove a lot of digitalization here, which helped us also during COVID to have no impact because we are we are maintaining a paperless office, which is already a big advantage to, to other areas other than a what we call a, a trade window whereby physical trade documents would arrive because they have to arrive here. So you need two, three people in the office. But other than that, for one and a half year during the pandemic, no one else had to be in the office. And that shows, I would say, 
the companies that were able to do that had already a good uh, level of digitalization. And however, am I happy where we are now? No, I'm not. There's still a, a long journey to go because sometimes we are taking on processes which are the way they are for many years. And then it's on us to make the changes and automate them. We have, for example, rolled out optical character recognition and automated learning for some of the, the paper-based processes to get data from the physical documents that we're having into a digital manner so that we extract them and can use the data which we could never use before. And I'm at least happy that we now got to the stage and then we can use the data A for analytics, but B also to recognize uh, does the machine learning work at the same time, we can use them to replicate them into booking systems to make the process more automated. But that's not on, on, on all areas. That's something to be very proud of. I'm very proud of on, on some areas where we delivered extremely well. At the same time, others are, you know, manual processes which we have to improve with. We call it smart automation with little robots who pick data. That my aim is that we become more controllers of what we're doing and not need to do you know, system entry. So we have made a good progress along the journey and it's for us um, a continuous improvement process whereby it's not like, okay, we have now done it and that stopped. No, each week or month, um, and that's a key KPI automation for us because anything we can automate is less prone to errors and we don't even need people. We can have the people focusing on the higher value services whereby human interaction matters and where it's still a people's business, but then, and that's where we stand on the journey. So we have invested and we, we invest more in, in our automation and there's some processes where I'm, I'm very proud of, at least we move from paper only to without capturing the data and manually typing them from now capturing them and make use of the data. And I think it's still a journey to go. It's still on our, it's still a key KPI here. And we are now seeing more and more processes around the world. And that's extremely powerful, yeah, because before you have an isolated process, I don't know, in Singapore, one in, in Spain, one in Germany, now you centralize things and you see maybe here and there it has been done very differently for the same process or inefficient. And you can now work on automation and we have developers who are basically only there to make sure we develop processes and we advance them to make them better for the clients so make sure that the client experience is improving that's the key things right that the client is yeah. happy in the back yeah yeah sure i mean putting the client at the center of improvement initiatives and automation and all that is the yeah generally seen as like the best best practice so i'm curious to hear your views on like in the, the trade services industry are there particular technologies that you see as you know fund like let's say the next generation of, of technology and trade services but at a technology level, are there certain technologies that you see as most promising? And curious to hear your thoughts on more from a technology perspective, what technologies are promising for trade services going forward? Yeah, so it's a good point. I would say in the industry, a lot of players are evolving fintechs and we're looking at them. But I think for us, it's also maintaining a clear strategy means knowing what we want to do and knowing what we not to want to do. And we are looking into that, what I like the most or what I found the most interrupting global supply chains are you need to send paper around the world, but people like to have letters of credit or guarantees because that instrument is very clear in each jurisdiction. There are very clear legal or binding documentation behind via the UCPs or EUCPs and everyone knows 
letters of credit for risk mitigation and financing function. However, no one likes the paper. At the same time, the industry is low because you need to align with so many key players that you have involved in the trade. You have the, the banks, the corporates, you have freight forwarder carriers, um, you have country routes, uh, customs. And what I find the most promising is initiatives whereby letters of credit can be executed globally with digital papers. And that one, I mean, not in PDF, but in real document whereby you hold the title of goods, which I think I find it good that now the, um, I think in the UK, MLETR law has been enacted. That means um, a digital document holds title the same as a, as a physical um, document. So these are the initiatives which we're really looking into. There's, I think, different providers to it. And then at the same time, the, the second key bucket is yeah, digitalization when it comes to capturing the data. I think we are at this stage, we capture the data. Now we need to make use of them in, a, in an efficient way, not only for the doc checking, for the compliance piece, and also the booking piece to be able to scale up a lot better than we do today. So these are the technologies we're keeping an, yeah. an eye on, on. And that's where I'm fascinated, right? How much is the computer now capable to replace a human whereby the, the human will take a, a higher value service on uh, means yeah. middle office function. But I'll be very brutally honest, it's a slow game. Companies come, companies go. And um, I think for me, it's important to to stay calm and know which are the right technologies and which not. Yeah, I know. It's really interesting to see how, especially with things like uh, AI more recently and generative AI in particular, there's a lot of question about does that replace jobs or does that um, you know lead to a threat to people that are involved in trade services, for yeah. example. My own view is that I think that generative AI in particular is something that can, I view it as a tool. It's something that can be used by people that know the processes, know the systems, and they can utilize it to be more productive at the job that they do already. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts. That, that's how I view it. I, I think that things like generative AI are are going to lead to a lot of optimization, a lot of improvement in process efficiency. I couldn't agree more. It's just sometimes some of the processes are complicated with many parties involved there. Yeah, but as I mentioned before, we are also using artificial intelligence to make sure there's some machine learning whereby after several times with the same transaction, that at least there's a suggestion for the next time because the, yeah. the computer recognized the, the same patterns and that's making it strong or collecting data that we have an understanding of what is the trade profile of our customer and then be able to use that for compliance purposes yeah. whereby we, we then be able to detect irregular flows which are deviating from the normal patterns. I yeah. fully agree to you. I think banks or, or for us, we are not utilizing all the time the full potential because it's simply too much and a very interruptive landscape outside there and you cannot follow each initiative and some of them are disappearing after a short period of time. Yeah. So we observe that very carefully, but as I mentioned, we have also artificial intelligence used in our processes to the level that it's reasonable, but of course we can do more. Great. That's the thing with new technologies. You know, I think the digital transformation is not like a, a start and a finish thing. It's just kind of a, a perpetual yeah. continuum as new technologies come up and new ways to transform the business come up. So it's a, it's a never-ending um, evolution. But I just have a, your role as CEO. What's the most challenging aspect of the work you do as CEO of Fairwell Commerce and Trade Services? I mean, for me personally, 
given we grew so much in a diversified way across many, many markets, you as a CEO need to be able to understand things very quickly. And also if it's outside of your usual scope, right? I'm, I'm a banker from a transaction banking side that understands operations well on, on cash trade and um, loans and so on. But now we're doing, I don't know, software development, application operation, database, a lot of uh, things more on, on KYC and that for different markets whereby the regulators have, have different demands as a CEO. You need to be on top of the things that doesn't mean you need to understand everything in detail. But if you want to make good decisions and you involve your management team and engage them and making sure our people understand what we're doing, you need to be able to understand all of it to the level that people have the right trust to talk to you when it comes to problems. Yeah, Because the last thing they want is a CEO who doesn't understand anything what they do and they will not come for a second opinion or an advice, right? So for me, it's um, the challenge to stay on top of all of that, uh, which is quite a lot by now to the level that it's not too detailed, but also not too high level to take the right decisions on the on the strategy and to be able to say also no when it doesn't fit to our scope and to our skills and at the same time drive the topic, even if it's new topics for the company, not outside of the, let's say outside of the, the general transaction banking space and to be able to understand also what's happening in the market quickly to make sure that we benchmark us all the time in the right uh, bucket with, with the market to be sure we be able to have a long-term track record and not missing out key trends. Yeah, 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 definitely. And uh, so thanks for the insights into the, the challenges of the role with CEO. And a question I ask most of our guests on the show, what do you think that um, people often misunderstand about the role of the CEO and, and the nuances of your role? Yeah, it's a good question, I would say. And it's not an easy one. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think they're sometimes not aware of, of course, the pressure and the execution level that the CEO has. And yet, um, I would say the CEO needs to be seen very strong and having a clear and positive attitude despite uh, challenges ahead. Yeah, because if people see see the CEO frustrated, is not happy, doesn't understand what's happening. That's the worst you want to send to the people, right? It's enough already if people are feeling unhappy or about certain situations, right? So we must always uh, maintain a positive spirit and be very open in changes. And that change management process is key. And um, often I think people think, that, okay, the CEO is just there to execute, but it's actually the CEO who, who needs to drive the things. If, if the CEO doesn't drive from the top of what do we want to do differently? What are the market trends? What is our internal and external benchmarking? People don't fear that there's a strong leadership and we are adjusting things. And that's the worst if you just continue the way it is. And it might be successful for another one, two, three years. But if you don't think outside of the box from day one and always critically challenge where you stand, you won't be making it to the next level of growth. And that's what I always try to do. It's not easy. And I do that not alone, but with my fellow board members and my management team, because our methodology is very clear. We will not be successful as individual contributors, but only as team players. And that's, I think, what our people fear, which is why we are a successful, fast-growing company, because we deliver and we walk the talk. Yeah, great. Yeah, if you can talk the talk and walk the walk, and then... Uh... 
people <laughs> hopefully will follow and the objectives of the company in, but uh, I really get that. And what advice would you offer to fellow CEOs that are kind of navigating the complex and um, uh, rapidly changing world around global transaction banking? It goes a bit to the point what I already mentioned. I think you need to have a very clear strategy. You need to give very clear updates on, and you need to look at uh, things critically because the world outside is changing extremely fast and that's okay. You don't need to follow each trend. I think it's very clear to know where to focus on and where not to focus on. And um, if you have a strong focus and you have a strong strategy, then what the market does matters. And as long as you have an agile concept whereby you can adopt relatively quickly as well, I think that's the the art you need to create a strong strategy, but still ma- maintain an, an agile setup that allows for changes along the strategy. Yeah? Because often I have the feeling in the industry, people say, this is my strategy, I'm now executing it. I have defined it, I have communicated it through the market, that's fine. But if you're, yeah. if, if there are new trends coming, and as you know, Matthew, they're coming extremely fast, yeah. it's also important that you can adopt them quickly and to also say no when it doesn't uh, really fit. I think that's key and communicate. There's no over-communication, there's just under-communication because your strategy is only as good as the people you have and you need to have a, a large number of people yeah. You will never make everyone happy, that's fine, but you need to get yeah. to a level whereby the boat is rowing in one direction and the 5% that are rowing in the other direction, that's fine. They will just be taken by the wind of change or whatever you, you, you say, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they get pulled along by the momentum of, uh, of, yes. of the rest of the board. Yeah, no, but, it, but it's an inter- really uh, interesting point you mentioned about, you know, you, you set the strategy, you communicate the strategy, get everybody on board with the strategy and then start executing the strategy. And that that's always a challenge with, you know, like a company that are at a certain size, which is still able to adapt agile uh, methodologies and that you set the strategy, communicate the strategy, start executing, and then something changes in the market and you need to kind of adjust course. And then um, I don't know if you want to give any tips on how you achieve that. Like uh, if there's something, if you've been in that situation where you know, I think every board, you know, they follow that pattern. They you know, set the strategy, communicate the strategy within the organization, and then start executing. But something fundamentally changes in the market, and then you need to change course. Usually not 90 degrees, but maybe you have to change, um, you know, 10 or 15 degrees. And I really love to hear your insights on how to achieve that. You know, it's, it's not a pivot per se, but there's a, a modification in course. And how do you navigate that change in course? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's another good question. I would say what we try to do as, as the overall group is to make sure we deliver in, in, in smaller cycles. That means we are releasing things much faster than to do big releases on if it's IT deliveries or product deliveries, because sometimes even small things matter from a client experience, whether this is a little button that's now available. So the, the cycle of releases are a lot faster. Uh, we call it sprint planning. I think it's every... Yeah. two weeks that we're planning and smaller portions that a the one who's getting it delivered has the opportunity to review it much faster than rather wait for a one and a half year project and then say well 30 percent of that i've ordered but 70 percent what you have <laughs> delivered is absolutely not to my expectation right that you yeah. don't create even the opportunity for disappointment because every two weeks you can see what has been delivered and down the road 
you might still have delays, but you can be certain that the end product or the product you're getting is much more aligned. And if you do that, you will be quite successful. You will still have projects that fail because ultimately the people doing it matter. And I think people who are working well together from a product, business and IT perspective, they worked well together before they were already doing that. But now you have what we created a more agile delivery organization whereby we are trying to actually doing exactly that to involve the end user more, to release faster. And that allows us still to execute a, a global strategy, but have the means to incorporate, let's say, market changes along the way, or at least have time for evaluation of, of new trends. And that's something which requires an organizational change, I would say, to the level that each company needs to be comfortable with how it fits in, in the culture. Yeah, really important stuff there. Yeah. And, and let's tell Commerce Services, are there particular projects that at this point in time you're, you're excited about? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm personally excited of all the growth we're having across the market and across the, the, the function and also about the technology piece there, yeah, because I really believe there's a huge opportunity to deliver a better client experience, to deliver scalability. And at the moment, yeah, you need to add more people all the time, but that limits your scalability, right? So the right automation and the right technology, if we can replicate what we did on the trade finance to other areas, I think would be key to deliver a highly sophisticated setup. And I'm excited to see the changes along the way um, with all the players out there on artificial intelligence. Um, that's how I'm, I'm really, really excited and uh, the growth that we are having here in Malaysia yeah, because it's really a fun place to work. It's hard work, but um, also with the opening we had recently in in our other office in the north, I think that's that's great. So I'm excited about uh, the next uh, four or five years on the next phase of, of growth and strategy and seeing how disrupted the world is, but still how we can sort of navigate that we also hitting our next targets over the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah, really cool. So, I mean, uh, this has been a really interesting conversation. There's like, uh, I think, Arne, you're originally from Germany. I'm originally yeah. from Canada. You're from Germany, living in Malaysia. <laughs> I'm uh, from you know Canada, living uh, in Belgium now in Dubai, doing this this interview. They're having really kind of a, a 360 of the world here. Yeah, yeah, it's so cool. But um, before we wrap up, if people want to follow what you're doing, follow along with the the work you're doing, follow along with the company's doing, uh, where's the best place where they can uh, keep in touch with uh, with you or with the company? They can. I mean, we have a website, commerstradeservices.com, or they can find me on LinkedIn and yeah. Um, hit me up over there and send me a personal message. That's okay. really okay. the best way to get in touch. Yeah, super. All right. So that's, I'm going to be in Singapore in November. So hopefully, I don't know if you're going to a Singapore Think Festival, but if you are, then it'd be great to uh, to meet you there. But we can we can arrange it afterwards. But yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. At, at any rate, it's been a, a really great conversation, Arnon. Thanks so much for that. Uh, I think we, myself, and the audience have learned a lot from all the insight you, you shared with us. So let's uh, just once more want to thank you for joining the podcast and uh, looking forward to hearing more about how our trade services is further progressing with the digital transformation in the months and years ahead. Great. Thanks, uh, Matthew. It was, it was really a pleasure. And uh, yeah, let's stay in touch. It was, it was really good. Definitely. All right. Thanks a lot, Erna. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Chief Digital Heroes, brought to you by Settlement the world's leading blockchain transformation platform. 
To learn more about Settlement or to access the latest episodes, visit Settlement.com.